for you as people in need of forgiveness, um, constantly and always, uh, that we are sinners and that we are people who need uh, to be made righteous. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that your righteous son would be with us tonight. He would cover our sins with his righteousness. And, uh, Lord, that we would love one another out of him, out of his love and out of his kindness, out of his mercy to us. And, uh, Lord, that we would live freely in his grace. In his name we pray. Amen. Cool. Um, so welcome to RF. My name is Simon Stokes. And if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you at some point. Uh, welcome especially for coming on a dark and stormy night. Um, it's good to be here with you all together. And I just want to put another plug for summer conference. Um, I mean, we're at that point in the semester where I'm putting in plugs now. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, man, summer conference is one of the first things that I ever did with RUF. Uh, I remember going as a freshman, and I... I think it was me and one other dude on this trip, on the summer conference from Emory, the year that we went. And uh, that dude just went to go skimboard and try to pick up girls from Mississippi State. And, <laughs> and I was sort, sort of by myself, and I didn't bring any sheets or towels, I, even though I was supposed to. I totally, I was a freshman dude, I didn't think about it. And uh, so instead I went to like one of those beach stores and I bought a SpongeBob SquarePants beach towel. And that was my beach towel, that was my shower towel, and that was my sheets that I slept on for a whole week. It's amazing how quickly the sun and the sand just dry things out down there. Uh, (laughs) All that in mind. (laughs) I had a really, really good time. It was such like... This teaching was amazing. I remember uh, meeting people, having a blast. Uh, if I go, God willing, this year, I'm not, I'm planning on going, this will be, I think, my 11th or 12th time to summer conference, which is like, I think, three months or four months of my life at summer <laughs> conference at this point, which is a lot. Uh, <laughs> now that I think about it, uh, no regrets. No <laughs> But it is, it is really an amazing time. If cost is any kind of an issue for me for you, let me know. I'm happy uh, to work with you on that. Um, we have donors who give scholarships and things like that to summer conference. So if you want to go, uh, we will make that happen. So just let me know. That said, let's dive into this tonight. Um, yesterday was one of the most fun days I've ever had at UNC. The sun was shining. It was a beautiful Carolina blue sky. It felt like the entire campus was on Prozac. It was amazing. <laughs> I mean, even the, even the dining hall workers were, like, uh, cheering and chanting and, like, were just super excited. Like, it was an amazing day. Um, I thought about one of y'all actually went to the tournament, and I thought about having him stand up and talk about what God had done in his life. But he would just talk about the tournament the whole time. <laughs> I mean, it was really an amazing day. Uh, the cover of the DTH after the championship at last redemption. You know? It was incredible. I mean, to think that this time last year, like, the whole campus was sad and depressed. And, part, like, part of the story that we've talked about for the whole year with Carolina basketball was possibly going back to the tournament and then going to the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8 and the Final Four and thinking redemption, 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 but no one wanting to jinx it, right? Like, and then it happening... And be able to think to yourself, like, all the mistakes of the past season, every missed free throw, every, like, lost game, every block shot, every broken play, poorly timed jumper, that sense of defeat that we had this time last year, 
all swallowed up in victory. At last, redemption. Like this time last year, Marcus hit the three-pointer, and then Chris Jenkins answers back and just stabs us in the chest. This year, redemption. Like, why do we love that so much? It's not just because it's Carolina basketball. Not only is it a win, I think it's a small picture of what we long for in our own lives. That for all of our mistakes, the mental and emotional calculations that we make about ourselves and the world and the people around us, that everything at some point would be wiped out. And that at last there would be celebration and at last redemption. That you would get this sense of just being totally free and able to celebrate and just being done with having to prove yourself and being just finished. I think our problem is that oftentimes we don't realize the great cost of redemption. And so if we have it, we don't know how to live in it well. If we want it, we don't know how to ask for it. That a lot of times we don't think about the blood and the sweat and the tears that are necessary to wipe away past transgressions and to bring victory out of defeat. But this semester, as we've talked about the parables of Jesus and the stories that he's told, this is something that's super important to understand. That in order to understand, in order to understand Jesus' stories, God's kingdom, Jesus' work, or even just have healthy and happy relationships with one another, we have to understand forgiveness. So I've got three points for us tonight. I want to talk about the necessity of forgiveness, the difficulty of forgiveness, and the way of forgiveness. The necessity, difficulty, and way of forgiveness. So let's begin by talking about the necessity of forgiveness. Starting at the top. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Y'all, Peter is being extra generous here. The rabbis of the time said that you had to forgive three times. Peter's doubling it and adding it one. You know, he's, do, he's being a solid guy right here, right? Peter, like you, wants to know how necessary is this forgiveness thing? When do we cut it off? I mean, we're constantly calculating moral and emotional debts that people owe us, or that we're obligated to pay to other people. Like, of course, I'll forgive my roommate for coming in late, but at some point they'll cross the line and I'll just cut that off. Or I'll be keeping kind of this mental tally of what they owe me. I won't bring it up, but we'll know that it's there. And it'll be kind of my nuclear option, and at the right time, I'm going to press the red button and just annihilate them, right? Like, that doesn't change when you get in marriage either, by the way. But, <laughs> but Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus comes back with a number that means forgiveness is just unlimited. He, and he tells us a story of why this is so. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. All right, in the ancient world, a denarius was a day's wage. That was the unit of money that you got for working for one day. But a talent was equal to 6,000 denarii, or about 20 years worth of work. So this guy could work 20 years and pay back one talent out of the 10,000. This is an absurd amount of money. I mean, just an absurd amount of money. It's like $7 billion in today's money. How long would it take you to pay that off? I mean, like lifetimes on lifetimes on lifetimes. It's a sum of money that can never be paid back. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Everything for this man is lost. 
all that he has, his wife, his children, everything that's precious to him, his very person, is lost to him. And when it's sold, it still won't be enough. When he says, have patience with me and I'll pay you back everything, it's clear that this guy has no understanding of how large this debt is. That the only one who really understands the enormity of that debt is the king. And what he understands is that justice is not going to help this man. This man is asking for justice, and it's totally foolish. I mean, it's completely impossible. The debt is too great to ever pay, and so the king opts for mercy instead. The man only asks for the time to repay the debt, but the king does something better. He releases the man with no conditions. Like, you can go if you work for me for a time. You can go if you grovel and feel bad about it. Like, none of that is here. It's just a total release. The amount of money here is something like the equivalent of the GDP of ancient Greece. To release this man from this sort of debt and absorb that cost himself is going to bankrupt the king and his kingdom. This is an extraordinary act of mercy. And look where it begins. With the king, who's a stand-in in the story for God. That Jesus' point here is that in order to be generous in forgiving one another, we have to first understand that God is outrageously generous in forgiving us. And if that's hard for you to wrap your head around, then you are not the only one. I mean, this is a problem for everybody. Writing this past week in the New York Times, David Brooks wrote, he said, We thought that with no common criteria by which to judge moral action, we'd all become blandly non-judgmental, sort of chill, pluralistic versions of Snoop Dogg. You, he really wrote that. You do you, I'll do me, we'll all be cool about it. Whatever feels right. But that's not what happened. Instead, society's become a free-form demolition derby of moral confrontation. The cold-eyed fanaticism of students at Middlebury College and other campuses nationwide. The rage of the alt-right. Holy wars over transgender bathrooms. The furious intensity at every town hall meeting on every subject. American life has secularized and grand political ideologies have fallen away, but moral conflict has only grown. In fact, it's the people who go to church least, like the members of the alt-right, who seem the most fervent moral crusaders. Do you hear what Brooks is saying there? That we have this sense embedded in us of justice. There are things that you and I can and can't do, but that as a culture, we've lost the vocabulary to make sense of that. And we had told ourselves that if we dropped that criteria of right and wrong, then everything would just chill out and people could go and live their life however they saw fit. But the irony is that when they did that, we only made things worse. That we're more divided now, not less. Because what's the problem? That people cannot help but live in relationship with one another. That you and I were made to live in this tight-knit bond of relationships. But when we do whatever seems right to us individually or as a group, that we trample others' feelings, other people's rights, that we rack up all kinds of emotional and moral debts with one another, and we can either force people to try and pay those back and yell at them until they do it, which they won't, or we can forgive them. And we all feel this weight of moral debt, also known as guilt. I mean, it's everywhere. And you can't just get rid of it by denying its existence. Because here's the deal with living in the modern world. That we live in a world where technology and the internet have made us more able to know about what's going on and more able to do something about what's going on, and it is overwhelming to you and me. You can log on to Facebook and see a hundred completely worthy GoFundMes. 
or turn on the TV and see pictures of starving children in Sudan and know for a fact that you could travel to that faraway place and be in that kid's hut in like 48 hours and relieve their suffering if you cared to. Like, you don't do it, but you know you could. And we feel that all the time with lots of stuff. I mean, think about the State Farm commercial that got a lot of play during the tournament. It's this guy on a subway train, and he crosses from him. He sees a picture of the humane shelter for animals, and suddenly the dog for the poster is sitting next to him. Did you see this commercial? And then he logs onto Facebook at work, and he sees an ad to help homeless veterans, and he clicks on it and like, likes it, and suddenly the vet is there. And then he's at the bar after work drinking some beers with some friends, and he sees on the TV above the bar a news story about how kids are dropping out of school and they need people to mentor them. And suddenly he's walking down the street, and there's literally all these like manifestations of need that are just walking behind him, just haunting him. And what's the end of the commercial? All the needs that are falling down the street, all these people, the kid who needs mentoring, the dog, the vet, endangered animals, like are falling down the street, and he just turns into a Y to help mentor some youth. And the commercial's point is obvious, that he's doing this to deal with his guilt. He's got a debt to pay, and he's going to have to work it out. And we feel this all the time. Wilfred McClay, in his essay called The Strange Persistence of Guilt, says this about the weight of guilt in our world right now. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. He's describing a world in which we're driven by this need to feel morally justified. And yet we have no clear framework to do that. We have this sense of guilt, but this feeling of being a sinner, but there's not a clear formula for redemption for us. That biblically sin is a stain, a weight, a, deb- a debt. And they want forgiveness from guilt either for individuals or groups. You get a buildup of scapegoating, of shaming, of condemnation, of blocking people on Facebook, of walling yourself off, of condemnation, of holding grudges. And that is not new. Jesus is saying that the place to start with dealing with that is to deal not with the people out there, but with you and God. That we all show up with this guilt like a debt hanging over our heads. And we have that with one another, but we really have it with God. Look, all of our sins are chiefly done not to each other, but to Him. That if He is the one who made everything, that owns everything, then to sin against anything in creation is to sin against Him, its Creator. This is why David, when he commits adultery and murder, prays, Against you, you only have I sinned. It's not that he didn't kill a man and force himself on his wife. But he racked up this debt of sin with God, the one who'd made that man and made that woman. I mean, part of the reason why using pornography is so sinful is that you're damaging yourself and your ability to do relationships. And you don't have the right to do that. Because God's the only one who's made you, and so he's the rights to your person. Part of why envy or theft is so sinful is that you're saying to God, what you've given me is not enough. You haven't created enough things for me to have. And those things are an insult to him, and so a sin. I mean, do you see that your problem with forgiving your parents is one that begins with God? That to forgive them or your housemates or past romantic flings or people that have burned you or snubbed you or insulted you or pressured you to do things you didn't want to do, 
and hurt you in really significant ways. That the place to start with those is not with them, but with seeing ourselves as a debtor to God and relying upon his forgiveness. All right, if that's the necessity of forgiveness, what's the difficulty of forgiveness? Jesus goes on. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Immediately the man is put into a similar position as the king, right? He goes out, he finds someone who owes him a lot of money. This is the equivalent of about $10,000. So it's a lot for him, but it's nothing compared to what he himself owed and had just been forgiven. Note that Jesus' point here is that forgiveness is not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. It's extraordinarily difficult and costly, which is why forgiveness is so rare. Forgiveness is not to say, you know, this isn't a big deal, it's all good, and pretend that something that is actually a huge deal is really not. But forgiveness is costly because it pays the moral debt of this other person. And Jesus' point is that forgiveness is just difficult. It's maybe one of the most difficult things you'll ever do. Brene Brown, uh, the famous researcher with the bajillion hits on TED Talk, had an interview recently where she talked about her experience of going back to the church and just having a lot of paradigms for her life, just totally blown up. And she had known that love wasn't easy, that it's not like hearts and rainbows and unicorns and stuff, but that love is extraordinarily difficult. And she never had it explained to her, though, she said, as well as she did when she came back and she started to talk to her priest. And she said she had a long talk with him on forgiveness. And he said to her something that really spoke to her as a researcher. That he said that in order for, to, for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die. Something has to die. And Brene Brown said that she never thought of that before. She was like, well, what do you mean? And he said, you know, whether it's your expectations of another person or hopes for what a relationship would look like, or could have looked like, or almost getting something, and then right when you thought you were going to get it, getting snatched out of your hands by someone that you know, and you've still got to do a relationship with them, that unless you forgive them, like it's not going to happen. Like For those things to be dealt with, there has to be a death. There has to be a death for forgiveness to happen. And then all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy, and love is for easy, he said that there's just not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. I mean, do you know what he means there? That religious people, and you know, sometimes especially Christians, can talk about forgiveness in these kind of high, sort of airy terms, where it seems like, you know, if you're here long enough, you'll just sort of reach the spiritual peak, and things like forgiveness are just going to naturally come to you. But Brene Brown's experience with that was actually that it's much, much harder. And the reason why is it just doesn't feel good in the moment, that something has to die. That there's no such thing as cheap grace. And that's true of the king here. It's definitely true of you and I. That if you're going to forgive a person, and be a per- then you have to be a forgiven person. Which as I'm reading this story, does not seem optional for those who want to follow Jesus. And that means that you have to abandon your claims that you might have against another person and just absorb the cost of these things to yourself. That to do friendships well, to date well, to honor your parents well, even when they're not always people who act honorably to maybe one day do marriage well, means that there's going to have to be blood on the floor and that some of that is going to have to be yours. But here's the deal. 
Our problem, our big problem is vertical. It's between us and God. And from the healing of that, our horizontal problems get dealt with as well. But the deal is that if those horizontal problems aren't affected by what happens vertically with you and God, then there's something still wrong with that vertical problem. But on the other hand, if that vertical problem gets healed, then horizontal problems with the people around you get healed as well. You know, I actually had a pretty amazing experience with this a couple of years ago at summer conference. Uh, <laughs> you thought I was done with that? <laughs> uh, there was a guy who was part of RUF a few years ago, before most of y'all were here, and he'd come into college, not a Christian, God in his province had kind of put him with a guy who was really sharp, who loved this dude well, who talked with him and kind of about wrestled with him about all of his kind of issues with Christianity. And this guy moves from being a pretty hard atheist to be an agnostic, to finally like meeting with me and talking with me. And he's really like, he's starting to think a lot about Christianity. And so I say, why don't you come down to summer conference with us? And it'll be a time to kind of explore these things, to hang out with people, like no agenda. Like if you don't believe this stuff at the end, you know, we love you still. If you do, that's great. And so we go down and we're hanging out and he's kind of seems to be jiving with some of the stuff. And the last night of summer conference, we're sitting around and kind of processing the week. And he just kind of raises his hand and says, you know, I think that like, things have started like really clicked for me. And I think I actually became a Christian tonight. And immediately he starts to go around the circle and to apologize to everyone in the circle. And he starts to apologize to the girls who are there for lusting after them, which was awkward. He starts to apologize... But beautiful, too. He starts to apologize to the guys for being really envious of their, like, beach bodies, which he did not have one. I mean, he was just straight up. He didn't. And he knew it, and he was envious of it. And so he admitted it. He started to apologize about his arrogance towards everyone. And, y'all, in those 10 or 15 minutes of this, it was the most awkward thing I've experienced at Carolina. And at the same time, it was the most beautiful thing that I experienced at Carolina. Like, people hugged him at the end of that. People shook his hand. They told him, I forgive you. Like, I did not have dry eyes at the end of that meeting. It was costly, and it was beautiful. Like, what if RUF was a place like that? That was marked by forgiveness, even if it was awkward. Like, not that it would ever be easy, but that it was a reality. Do you know what so many people's struggles with Christian community are? The fact that however you cut it, that this is a room full of sinners. And if you or I share enough history together and do enough life with one another, that we are going to hurt each other. At some point, we're going to sin against each other. And when that gets hard, you can either leave and start over, or you can forgive. What if the next time that someone stands you up, or doesn't text you to come out, or maybe you like a person and you know that they like you, but then things don't work out and feelings are hurt. What if you said to yourself, you know, if Jesus has loved this person and shed his blood for them, and if that's what he's done for me too, then I guess I need to love them and forgive them as well. Not that that would be easy, because I'm not talking about cheap grace, but that you would actually deal with them and you would say to them, that hurt when you did this. That hurt when you said this. That hurt me. And you forgave them. Like, that's costly, that's beautiful. It sounds awkward. But it's good too, isn't it? So what is the way of forgiveness then? 
Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. These are strong words. And there's a lot of things in this uh, story that are kind of over the top in terms of the money and all that kind of stuff. So I think Jesus is speaking a little bit of hyperbole here. I don't think God has jailers. But what's, what Jesus is putting on his, his finger on here is the reason why this guy doesn't forgive is that it's not just costly. It's that he forgets that he was forgiven. I cleared away a mountain of debt for you, and then you turned around, and you aren't even willing to try to at least clear away this sizable hill of debt from someone else. And the warning here is, don't forget what you've been forgiven. Don't forget the vertical, right? Then when we do this, we dehumanize someone and say, you know, you're nothing like me. You're terrible. I'm amazing. You're a perpetrator of injustice. I'm a victim. And we exclude ourselves from this community of indebted sinners by saying, what you've done... It's something I would never do under any circumstance. You are nothing like me. But to do what Jesus commands means that you've got to live in the story of what God has actually done for you. I mean, think about this story and the way that it mirrors the larger story of the gospel. That the whole point of the gospel is that the king bankrupts himself by sending his son, the real treasure of the kingdom. And this son takes the place of this indebted servant and pays off the debt of moral guilt that we all owe. And if, as the Bible declares, Jesus is really God who came to earth to die for our sins, then we fall, and we often fall, that he will not punish us but forgive us. You know, if you serve your grades or your moral record, then when you mess those things up on the inside, you'll be crucified by your self-loathing. But Jesus was crucified for you. When we become passionate about justice, we can become self-righteous or cruel when we confront people that we think of as, of as oppressors. But the gospel just eviscerates our self-righteousness. It helps us say, you too? Man, the seed of every sin is in my heart. Just because I haven't done this exact thing doesn't mean that I can't. I'm totally capable of that. And because it gives us this incredible security of love, we can approach someone who has sinned against us with boldness as well. We have to talk. This is going to be costly, but I love you too much to just cut you off. Y'all, at the heart of Christianity is God dying for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness, and actually accomplishing that forgiveness through his death rather than retaliating against them and making them pay. And this is incredibly humbling because it means that nothing you can do can pay off anything for yourself. Be patient with me while I pay off my debt with you in the world is laughable. I mean, you can't do it. And if you try, your heart will break under the weight of guilt. So it's deeply humbling. And yet it also destroys self-hatred and gives incredible security. Because God looked at you and did everything that he needed to do, but which you could not do to pay your debt. You don't know anything. The debt is gone. It's been paid because you're dearly beloved. And so you're incredibly secure. Because the cross reveals... A God who's so committed to justice that sin and evil are not overlooked but judged and judged to the uttermost. At the cross there is blood and darkness and tears and nails. Yet at the same time there's incredible mercy and love. The cross shows us a God who's so committed to forgiveness that he's willing to bear the cost of our sin and pay for the judgment we deserve ourselves. That he refuses to choose between justice and forgiveness.
that God will have both. And this is the story that we live in. It's the model for love. It's the guide, the impetus to help us to love one another and actually be in community. And so I'll end with this. I heard a story a while back about a man named Hector Black. He was told this when he was actually a very old man. And he said that back during the civil rights era, he and his family had moved to Atlanta to go help Martin Luther King and kind of be part of the civil rights movement in the South. And that when they'd done that, they'd moved into kind of a rundown part of Atlanta and they'd gotten to know a family who was one of their neighbors. And in the family, the dad was just totally gone. The mom was an alcoholic. And Hector and his wife kind of loved the kids and had them in their house and just kind of spent a lot of time with them. But as the years went on, you know, things kind of changed for them and they decided it was time to leave Atlanta and they decided to move to Tennessee. And as they were getting, packing up to leave, one of the daughters from this family actually approaches Hector and his wife and she asks, you know, could I come and be your daughter? I don't have anything here. Could I be part of your family? And he says, yeah. I'm like, okay. So she comes and she, for all intents and purposes, becomes their daughter. And she lives in their house and eats their food and goes to school and she grows up. <clears throat> she goes to college and she actually winds up becoming a librarian and moving back to inner city Atlanta. And teaching kids who come from a really similar background as her how to read and maybe escape the cycle of poverty. But Hector said that one night she came back to her apartment and she surprised a crack addict while he was robbing her and he murdered her. And Hector talked about how much he hated this man at first. That he had taken away his daughter. And their family had known death, but never death like this. Never at the hands of another person. And he said that Hector, or Hector said that he worked so hard to see this man as a fellow sinner, as someone who suffered, as someone who had been shaped by all these things in his life, that he wanted to separate, if he could, this awful sin against his daughter and his family from the man who'd done it. Not to excuse it because there was no excuse, but to separate it if he could. He said at the trial, the man was given life without the possibility of parole. And the family was given an opportunity to say something. Like, what would you say at that? At the murder trial of your daughter. Hector got up and said how much he loved his daughter. And how even though she was not their daughter by any claim of birth, she was their daughter by every claim of love. And he turned to the man and said lastly, and I wish for all those who have been wounded by this terrible crime that they would find God's peace. So he looked in the man's eyes and he said, I wish this especially for you. And he said their eyes met for the first time and there was tears streaming down his face. And Hector said that it looked like the man was a soul in hell. And the man begged for forgiveness. He said, I'm so sorry for what I did to you and to your daughter. And Hector said that he knew that in that moment, this man who'd come from the streets and who's going to prison was really giving him the only thing that he had. His sorrow over his sin. And he said that it took a long time. But he worked and he felt like, you know, that he'd forgiven this man. And so he started to write letters to him in prison. And he and his wife went and visited him. And started to meet with him and pray for him. And they started to give Christmas presents. Christmas presents. To the guy that had killed their daughter. And he said, you know, he realized that when you hate... That it's like you're taking poison and expecting the other person to die. 
That it was through forgiveness that both of these men could start to live again. With loss, oh yeah, like terrible loss. But with life as well. I tell that story because I don't wish that sort of suffering on anyone. But I tell it because I hear a story like that. And if the gospel is true, then it means that God has done something like that for us. That we are debtors to God. And to forgive us of our debt, it cost him everything. That only God looks honestly at the terrible things in the world and at his enemies. At people like you and I, and he refuses to choose between justice and forgiveness. Instead, he says, you are forgiven. You are free. Jesus will pay the punishment. He will pay the debt. He will take it on his shoulders. And that comes not because we summon it up inside of ourselves, because God has placed himself upon a cross, surrounded by his enemies, betrayed by his friends, and shed his blood so he could look at you and say, you are as right with me as my son. There is no condemnation for you. Any anger, any frustration, it has been poured out on Jesus. And all of my joy, all of my welcome, all of my delight, I pour into your lap because of him. You are free. And if that's, meant what it, if that's what it's meant for God to love us, then let us turn towards those people who have hurt us and wronged us and sinned against us, who really owe us something, and love them like that as well. I think that's what freedom would mean for us. I think that's what it means if we actually knew and understood the gospel. And that's my offer to you tonight, to go and live in the freedom and the reconciliation and the joy of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to live in the joy and the freedom and the reconciliation of your work on our behalf. Lord, that we would be reconciled to the people around us, that we would love the people around us. Lord, that we would be awkwardly, extravagantly, just in love with those people, in love enough to bear the cost that they owe us in our lives, to bear the weight of their sin, to care for them, to love them, because we know how much you've loved us and borne our sin as well. Help us to do that and live as your children. In your name we pray. Amen.